Welcome to Church on the Edge, a podcast designed to challenge you and help you rethink what church is and what church should be. This is your host, Dan Armistead. You can learn more about me at my website, danarmistead.com, so please check it out. The end justifies the means. The religious leaders broke and trampled their own laws to crucify the one they labeled as heretic and a blasphemer. They did it because they followed that age-old lie, the end justifies the means. Have a listen to this message, and after it's over, I want to say a few things about this same philosophy, which seems to be driving a lot of ministries and pastors in the church today. Today we're going to continue talking about the scandalous life of Jesus Christ, and here just in the last few weeks, we have uh, followed Christ into Jerusalem, and we sang about that today. It was on a Sunday that Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and the crowds were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what Jesus was doing that day is something that he had not done publicly in his three and a half years of ministry. It was impossible not to notice it. All the people clearly understood Jesus' gesture because when he came riding in on that donkey, our Lord was sending a very sincere sign, a very clear symbol to all the people. He was saying, yes, I am the promised one. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of the living God. And if you remember when we looked at that, The religious leaders cried out. They were in the crowd, the scribes, the uh, the Pharisees, and others. And as they heard the crowd shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they recognized that the crowd was declaring him to be Messiah, and they were bothered. They were angry, and they said to him, Rabbi, rebuke your disciples. And you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, if these people were silent, even the rocks would cry out. In other words, Jesus is saying there's no way that you can cover over the fact, you can change the fact that the truth is I'm God's son, I'm the Messiah. And they cut those palm branches off the trees and they waved them before Messiah as we saw in the video. They placed their cloaks on the pathway before him and again they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, it means save us, we pray. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and that was the first day. When he came into Jerusalem, the Bible says the first place he went to was the temple, and then a very ominous sentence. It says he looked around at everything. And we kind of know what everything is because of what he did on the second day. What really bothered our Lord was there in the court of the Gentiles, the place where the nations were to come and hear about and learn about the only true God, living God in all the earth, were money changers, were those selling the sacrificial doves. There were people who actually would take a shortcut through the temple courts to get to another part of Jerusalem, really just taking the sacredness of that place and uh, um, defaming it. And Jesus saw all of this, and then it says he went back to the village of Bethany just outside of Jerusalem where he stayed for the night 
likely in the home of uh, Martha and Mary and Lazarus, who he's raised from the dead. And then the next day, our Lord comes back. The first place he goes is the temple. And there in the temple, he takes that to cords, he wraps them into a whip, and he turns over the tables of the muddy changers, scattering their coins all over the floor. He turns over those uh, sacrificial doves' cages, and he chases them out with a whip, saying, my father's house is meant to be a place of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. And then immediately after that, it says that the, blind, the blind and the lame came, and Jesus healed, and Jesus taught right there where God's house was really being defamed, its purpose corrupted. That was the second day. The third day, Jesus came back to the temple, and on that day, the religious leaders showed up, and they asked him a question. By what authority... Did you do what you did yesterday? What authority did you have to drive them out with whips and turn over those tables? And Jesus answered them and he said this, I'll answer your question if you'll answer mine. I love the way the Lord dealt with people. And then he said to them, John the Baptist, his ministry, tell me, you wise, learned men of Scripture, was John's ministry from God, or was it a ministry from man? Was it not of God? And when Jesus asked that question to the religious leaders, they, they were trapped. The Bible says they couldn't answer because if they said, no, John's ministry was not of God. Now, you may remember a few weeks ago, they actually said John the Baptist had a demon because he lived in the desert. He ate locust and wild honey. They went the opposite route with Jesus because Jesus had fellowship with sinners, he drank wine. They said he's a glutton and a wine biber, a drunkard. So two extreme characterizations of two men of God with two different styles of ministry. But they said John has a demon. Now, the problem was they couldn't answer and say it was of man because the Bible says they knew that the people who had listened to John who had waded into the Jordan River and been baptized, the people considered John a man of God. And if they said, no, he wasn't, then they would be opposing that. And in fact, they would be announcing their own pride, godlessness, self-righteousness. And so the, con the debates continued between Jesus and the religious leaders. And again and again, they sent men to the temple to ask him questions about taxes to Caesar and so forth and so on, marriage. And every time, Jesus got the upper hand. And I want to tell you why. Because you can't hide truth and you can't hide a lie. At least you can't hide a lie not in the presence of the Son of the living God not in the presence of the God of the ages, not in the presence of the way, the truth, and the life, not in the presence of Jesus Christ. None of us, even in the depths of our hearts, where nobody else sees and nobody else knows, none of us can hide that lie from the light of Christ. And so finally, the religious leaders plotted and they planned, and through an offended 
disgruntled disciple by the name of Judas Iscariot, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and all the religious leaders who were constantly fighting, hated each other, were anathematizing each other, saying they weren't of God, all of them came together for the first time and they plotted to arrest Jesus by night in the dark, away from the crowds, in the garden where Judas Iscariot knew he would be. And they sent a mob with clubs in their hands and hatred in their hearts, and they arrested Jesus in the garden. Last week we looked at the politics of crucifixion. Jesus before Pilate, Jesus before the religious leaders in the kangaroo court, Jesus before Herod. You remember when he was before the high priest in that first trial, they brought in witnesses, they contradicted each other, their stories just didn't make sense. One one would say one thing, one would say another. And finally the high priest said, well, let's just ask him, are you the son of the living God? And Jesus answered and said, I am he. And he didn't stop there. He said, and you will see the Son of God seated to the right hand of the power on high and coming in the clouds of heaven. And when he said that, the high priest tore his garment and he said, what more do we need? This is blasphemy. And then because they couldn't execute him, because they didn't have the legal right to do that, they went before Pilate. And after this game of what we would say in the United States, cat and mouse, just political maneuvering, Pilate was outsmarted. He was outmaneuvered. And like a caged lion, Pilate gave Jesus over, knowing that he was innocent, knowing that he was there because of their jealousy and envy. Pilate gave him over in a, in a political a gesture, really, to be crucified. And that brings us to our text this morning, the road to the cross. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at uh, two things. But over the next two Sundays, let me get this up here. Now, let's own. <laughs> it's own, Jim. No, it's off. <laughs> okay, green is on, red is off. Okay. Hey, that works. Okay. I told them backstage praying today, I said, I'm not the brightest cabbage in the cabbage patch, okay? So, and they're agreeing with me. So we're going to look at two roads. This morning we're going to look at the road to the cross, the Via Della Rosa, or the way of suffering. That's what the Via Della Rosa means. And then next week we're going to come back and we're going to look at the road from the tomb. And that's the two disciples uh, with Jesus on the road to um, Emmaus. This morning, though, we're going to look at Jesus' march, staggering, painful journey up the Via Della Rosa to Golgotha, the place of the skull, where there at Golgotha, Jesus Christ took your place and mine, and he died for our sins. He died to set us free from sin. He died to give us power over sin and from the penalty of sin there at Calvary, there at the place of the skull. 
But next week we're going to come back because whenever you talk about the cross, you have to talk about the cross and the resurrection together. They go hand in hand. And we're going to look next week specifically at the road from the tomb. And that road is when Jesus walked with two of his disciples. It was a road of intense love and fellowship. It was a road filled with grace. So that finally when those two disciples realized that the whole time they'd been in the presence of the risen Lord, they said something to this effect. We knew there was something special happening. We knew our hearts were burning inside us. We knew that something good was happening. And so we're going to look at these two roads, the first road of sorrow and suffering and the second road of rejoicing as they know their Lord is alive. So let's talk this morning and talk about the first road. And we see on that first road two misplaced things, misplaced Simon and misplaced sorrow. And so we're going to look, first of all, at misplaced Simon. And the question I want you to be thinking about, the question we're going to answer is, was he really misplaced? Was he really in the wrong place at the wrong time? Or was Simon in God's place at God's time? In fact, let me pause here and say something about spiritual growth. Sometimes in our lives, we think, why is this happening to me? Why am I having to go through this? I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time. No, you're not. You're in God's place at God's time. And he can work all things together in your life for good, just like he did with Simon. So let's talk about misplaced Simon. The first thing I want to note about Simon, who in verse 26 of our text, it says he was a Cyrenian. That is, he was from the country that we know today as Libya. Simon was obviously a believer in God, a convert to Judaism. And uh, he was in Jerusalem with countless numbers of other people who had come for the greatest celebration of the Jewish year, the festival of the Sabbath. And there's a little bit of a debate among scholars uh, about Simon. Some scholars believe he was a literal physical Jew who probably lived in Libya, one of the dispersed And he journeyed back to Jerusalem for the Passover. Others say, no, he wasn't a Jew. He was a native Libyan. He was a black man, an African. He was a convert to Judaism. Not unlike the Ethiopian eunuch who Stephen led to Jesus in the book of Acts. Now, personally, I tend to believe that Simon really was a native Libyan. And I want to tell you why I believe that in just a minute. But first of all, I want you to imagine with me how Simon must have felt. And I'm going to speculate here just a little bit, but when I'm finished, I I, I think you'll agree that whether or not I have all the details right or not, the essence of what happened that day to Simon and the dramatic change that came into his life is very obvious, and it's clearly communicated in the Scripture, in the Word of God. So to begin with, let me say this about Simon. I believe Simon was there that day on the road, on the Via Della Rosa, just like the rest of the crowd. Jesus was led from the courtyard of Pilate to Calvary, and the crowds followed him. Religious leaders cheered. In fact, the Bible tells us they followed him to the cross, where they stood beneath the cross of Jesus, and they mocked him. 
literally, literally, it says they were shooting the lip at him. Now just imagine that. The district attorney and his associates, the criminal is guilty. So they come to the execution and they mock him as he dies. If you're the son of God, come down from that cross and we'll believe. I'll never forget it was Dr. J.W. McGorman, one of my New Testament seminary professors at Southwestern Seminary, who said, you know, gentlemen, he said, even if he'd come down from that cross, they wouldn't have believed. That's what sin does to our heart. It so hardens us, we can't see. But these religious leaders, these men who knew the words of Scripture, he has shown the old man what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to love justice, to do mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. They sat there and they mocked an innocent, dying man. Women were in the crowd that day. We spent some time in this series talking about Jesus' relationship with women. And the women there that day were weeping. Their hearts were broken over what was happening to this good man, this rabbi from Nazareth. And we're going to talk about those women and their misplaced sorrow in just a minute. But the women were there that day. There were others in the crowd. There were still those who, in their mob frenzy and mentality, were tasting blood and shouting, Give us Barabbas! Give us Barabbas! And there were others there that day, I'm sure, who came and watched, and they had an eerie feeling. They knew something wasn't right. They knew something was very, very wrong, which was going on. I wonder, of all those, which one was Simon? Well, we don't know. But we do know this, that Simon and the crowd suddenly felt the cold steel of a Roman soldier's sword on his shoulder. And he heard these words, you are being conscripted by the order of Caesar to serve Rome, and you will carry this wooden cross up Calvary's hill. Simon, he didn't have a choice. It was pick up the cross and carry it or die. And so I'm sure, thinking to himself, boy, am I ever in the wrong place at the wrong time, Simon picked up that bloodstained cross, and walking before Jesus, he carried the lamb's altar to the place of sacrifice. Misplaced Simon in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or was he? It's significant that Mark, in his gospel, tells this same story. But Mark gives us a little additional information about this man, Simon, because Mark tells us that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, when you understand that Mark wrote his gospel to the church in Rome, And when you read Paul, the apostle's letter to the church at Rome, and in the final words of that letter, you read Paul's greeting to Rufus and his mother, then it becomes obvious that Alexander and Rufus, the sons of Simon, were believers. 
They were Christians. They had become disciples of Jesus Christ. And when we put all that together, what history and tradition and Scripture tells us, we learn that Simon from Libya, misplaced Simon, who was constricted to carry the cross of Christ, Simon became a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. And yes, I do believe Simon was a native Libyan because you see both Rufus and Alexander are Gentile names, not the names of Jewish boys at all. So that this man from Libya and his family came to know the Christ of the ages. Misplaced Simon wasn't in the wrong place at the wrong time at all. Simon was in God's place at God's time right where God wanted him. And don't miss this. It changed his life. It changed his life. Now, that's what God does with you and with me. You know, I could stop this service this morning, just sit down and invite some of you to come up like you're going to be doing in your spiritual growth groups and share your stories. The second chapter in the book, Our Stories. You know, our stories are powerful. We are a community of people. Our faith is a shared faith and community. It's personal, but it's community. And the most powerful thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the presence of the Spirit in our lives are the stories. We are witnesses. We, each one of us, have a story to tell of how God has worked in our lives, brought us to His Son, gotten us through difficult times. And we could literally, and and we're going to start doing this again. We've done it at times. I want to invite some of you to come up through parts of our service and share your stories. That's one of the things we're going to be doing with our spiritual growth groups is I'm going to be asking those of you who are willing to come up here and stand and tell us your stories. Men and women who thought they were misplaced who thought they were at the wrong place at the wrong time, and yet God had them exactly where he wanted them. Maybe you're one of those this morning. Maybe you're here at SIBC, and you think, you know, boy, my life's just not going the way I really want it to go. I'm having some struggles. I'm having some issues. You know what? We all do. Every one of us, from the pulpit to the pew, that's life. But that's why one of our values here is restoration. What does restoration mean? Two things as we talk about it. Restoration is, first of all, our being restored as human beings to God through Jesus Christ. All of us need a Savior. All of us have hearts that have strayed away from God, have rebelled, we've lost our way. One of the words for sin in the Bible simply means to miss the mark. There's another word that means rebellion. In other words, it means to cross a line. We've done that too. Sometimes just realizing that I've missed God's plans for my life. I'm not where I think I should be. And restoration says, 
that God, through faith in Jesus Christ, can give you a life that he's planned and purpose that will bring to you joy and fullness and contentment. And when you wake up in the morning, you'll jump out of bed. You'll be excited about what your life's about because you are now a part of something bigger than yourself. You're a part of something eternal. You're a part of the kingdom of God. You belong to the Christ of the ages. That's restoration. But restoration here at SIBC means something else. And I've seen it for nine years now. Because people come to Seoul and some of you come because um, the United States government said you're going to Seoul. And you may have put in for Washington, which is where you guys are going, beautiful state. You may have wanted to go uh, to Guam, I don't know. But the U.S. said, no, here's where you're going. And maybe you come and you're just a little upset about that. Get over that because this is a great city, really. It is a great city. And I get on, I've gotten on to a few military people before because sometimes you get over on that base and you just live on the base. Get off that base. You're in Asia. There's things going on. Jump into it. Get involved. I'll never forget a few years ago we were at an English Tebet camp. And I was with a young guy, I think a junior and senior in high school. They'd been here a few years. And we were watching uh, TV, Korean TV. And the best part of Korean TV, you know what it is for somebody that can't really understand Korean? It's the commercials. Because the Koreans have the greatest sense of humor. And, and there's really reflection into the culture in the commercials of Koreans. So I was laughing. Just you know, I couldn't understand the words, but I could get what was going on. I was laughing. And I was trying to explain to him why this was so funny in Korean culture. And I had been here about four years. And I said, man, you've been here all these years, and you don't even know this is a part of Korean culture. I said, you've got to get off that base, dude. So when you're here... Whether you're U.S. military or business or maybe a teacher, many times we come and we end up isolated and alone. We hear everybody talking on the subways and the buses, but we don't know what they're saying. And we begin to be homesick. And then God works in mysterious ways, and I've seen it again and again. Somebody who would have never gone back in church. Somebody who left church years ago, maybe when they went to college, maybe because they got their feelings hurt in church, maybe because their heart just grew cold, they began to question, they began to doubt. They come into this church, they sit somewhere up in the back, kind of where Kevin's sitting way back up there. Kevin's our finance guy, so he's okay. I'm not going to say anything bad about him. That's where the money comes from. But they come into this church and they sit. And that's why so often I say this. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to know that you're in a place where you can be comfortable and relax and hear the claims of the gospel without feeling like your arm is being twisted or you're being pressured in any way. And so many times over the years, this is what we've seen. People who have either come to know Jesus Christ for the first time or many who wandered away from church coming back to church and becoming involved again in the community of faith. So maybe you think, man, I'm in the wrong place. I really don't know why I'm having to go through what I'm going through. Could it be that like misplaced Simon, you're exactly where God wants you to be? But then there's a second thing I want us to look at here. 
Because on that road to Calvary, there's not only misplaced Simon, there was misplaced sorrow. And what I'm talking about here is what Jesus says to the women in verse 27. It says the women were following him. They were mourning him. And Jesus calls out to them. He calls them the daughters of Jerusalem. In verse 28, it says, Jesus turned to those women and he said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. And then our Lord said something that was shocking, amazing. In verse 29, Jesus said, For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and the breasts which never nursed. Now let's just stop right there for a minute. That's an amazing thing. Let me tell you why. Because Jesus is quoting a famous proverb in that day, only he's changing it. The proverb said, blessed are the wombs which are not barren and the breast which nurse. In other words, blessed are those women who have children. Now, we talked a little bit about women in Jesus' day as chattel or property and grounds for divorce. You know, one of the things that was ground for divorce, according to some scholars... Some groups, if uh, your wife burned your dinner, you could divorce her. But a very common practice was divorcing a wife who didn't give you children. It was legal grounds for a man in that day to divorce his wife if she didn't bear children. That's how important children were. And a woman was considered to be really cursed by God if she didn't give birth to children. You may remember the story of Elizabeth. We talked about her over Christmas. When old Baron Elizabeth conceived and gave birth to John the Baptist, she said, the Lord has taken my reproach, the insult of my life, away. But now here Jesus takes a proverb and he turns it upside down. He turns it on his head and he says, the days are coming when the opposite of this proverb is going to be true. And he says, the days are coming When the barren women will be blessed, those who have no children. And then in verse 30, Jesus continues, and he says something else. He says, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Now, let me explain what that second proverb means. If they do these things in the green, what will be done to the dry? In other words, if they're throwing green wood on the fire, which doesn't burn very easily, what's going to happen to the dry wood? Now, Sherry and I spent uh, January on top of a mountain in North Carolina. Uh, Our favorite thing there was burning wood. We love to burn firewood. And that was very important. God blessed us. We put in a bid for this place that was way below. We didn't think they'd get it. We were going to settle for a, a propane fireplace. This had a wood fireplace, and God worked it out, and uh, this lady that we bid on took the, took the bid. And so we, we settled in our place in January, and the first thing we did, I mean the first thing we did, before we got there, we emailed our realtor and said, please find somebody to get us some wood on the mountain. We've got to have wood to burn our fireplace. 
But if you know anything about wood, you know that uh, usually if you're buying wood in the winter, most of the wood's coming green. It's just been cut down. Now, green wood still has a lot of water in it when the trees sucked it up. It, the longer it stays cut, the more that water comes out and it dry. It burns easy. So we had to really work at getting the green wood to burn. Now, once you get a good fire going, you can just throw the green wood on and it burns. But ideally, and before we left, let me tell you what we did. We ordered about two cords of wood, and we covered them up with a canvas. Why? So when we show up next January, we'll have dry wood that starts up easy, and we'll mix it with green wood. Now, with that as an explanation, let's think about what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, if they're throwing wood on the fire, which really isn't meant to be burned... What's going to happen to the wood that is meant to be burned? And now that's an awesome, awesome picture if you think about it. Fire, burning, judgment. Here's what Jesus is saying. If my people and the leaders of my people can send an innocent man to his death, indeed, if my people can send their Messiah to his death, if they can kill the Son of the living God, the promised one who is sinless, who doesn't deserve death and judgment then what in the world is going to happen to the dry wood, the people who aren't innocent and who do deserve death and judgment? And the answer is, judgment is coming. They're going to receive the judgment of God. And they did. The truth is that Jerusalem fell to the Romans about 30 years after Jesus was crucified in A.D. 70. And you know what's sad about that? What's sad about the fall of Jerusalem is that the Jews rebelled against Rome. And they were so certain. We read about this in the histories of Josephus and others. They were so certain when they rebelled against Rome that God was going to save them. They were so certain that they were doing exactly what God wanted them to do. And there's no doubt in my mind that they quoted the Scriptures, Bible verses about God's protection and deliverance, verses that promised that God would save Jerusalem. But even as they quoted those verses, the Romans came and they leveled the city and the temple to the ground. Now, I want you to think about it. Just imagine how many Jews, when that happened, looked up into the heavens and they cried out to God, God, where are you? God, why have you let this happen to us? We believed in you. We claimed the promises of Scripture that you gave us. God, why have you abandoned us? Why have you forsaken us? And all the while, it wasn't God who had abandoned his people. It was his people who had abandoned their God. The Bible says, John chapter 1, he came to his own, but his own received him not. Give us Barabbas, they shouted. Let our blood be on our own heads and the heads of our children. And that's what they shouted that fateful day when the crucified Son of God, their Messiah and King, their Lord, their Savior, walked the Via Della Rosa to Calvary's cross. And now, years later, blinded, Still religious, still going to synagogue, still claiming the promises of Scripture, but blind, blind to the truth, blind to the ways of God. I've seen it many, many times in my 33 years as a pastor. So many times 
I have seen people, men and women, who with their heads in their hands, weeping, great tears, great sorrow, and saying, where's God? I've been so faithful. I claimed the promises. I came to church. I did all the right thing. Where is God? Why is he letting this happen to me? And not all the time. But many times I've looked at that life that I've known, that I've watched for years, like so many other pastors. And I've seen so clearly that again and again they have refused to heed God's call in their life. A husband who's neglected his wife and his children, blinded by ambition, and now they don't want to have anything to do with him. Or maybe a young man or a woman or a couple who's mismanaged their money or finances and and now they're being sucked under by bankruptcy. Maybe a student who has played around all through college and then they graduate with low grades and they can't find a job. I've seen it over and over again, story after story, men and women crying out, why God, when the truth is that God has been crying out to them for years, doing everything he could to get their attention, to show them the right way, but they just refuse to see. But do you know what the worst of all? What's worst of all is when that kind of thing happens. Now listen to me. In the black church, you know what they say? In the African-American church in America, this is tight, but it's right. So listen to me. This isn't easy to hear. But the worst thing is when this kind of thing happens to Bible-reading, church-going, deacon-serving, Sunday school-teaching Christians who did, quote-unquote, all the right things, But in their religious duties, they never really listened to, they never really saw the voice of God, the heart and the will of God in their lives. And yes, it can happen to you. And it can happen to me. We can be quote unquote good Christians but never really have the kind of relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, that allows us to hear and to know the heart and the will of God. One of the chapters of our book that we're going to be working through talks about the difference between sacrifice, duty, and commitment being driven out of my religious duty and my sacrifice, commitment, and duty being driven from a passionate heart that knows the living God. You see, I love and care for my wife and she for me, not because of a piece of paper or even because of an agreement that we made for the pastor, her daddy, but because I love her. And there are a lot of things that I would do that I wouldn't do for a lot of people that I'll do for my wife. And that's what God wants from you and me. He wants us to be more focused on being than doing. And when I'm focused on being the person that God has called me to be and loving him and knowing him, then I will do the things he's called me to do. What happened to Jerusalem? What happened to the people of God? It can happen to the people of God today. Because all of us who ultimately turned a blind eye to God and his ways and his call and his claim. All of us who ultimately reject what God is seeking to do in our lives will know pain and suffering 
because we rejected him. And we can do that even going through our religious duties every week. Don't let those religious duties replace your relationship with the God of the ages. We're, all, we're almost done. But I want to mention that it's significant that the words of Jesus in verse 30 are actually quoted in chapter 6 of the book of Revelation. In chapter 6 of that book, John describes the second coming of Jesus and the judgment that comes on all of those who've rejected him, both the rich and the poor, the slave and the free, the religious and the unreligious, and they cry out and they say, in the words of Jesus here, they call out to the mountains, fall on us, and they say to the hills, cover us. Now, I want to ask you a question, and we'll be done. Is it possible? Is it possible to think I'm right, but to be wrong? Is it possible to believe everything is okay between me and God and to actually still be opposing the very will of God and the things that God's trying to do in my life? Well, to answer that question, just read the Scripture. Just listen to the Word of God. And just look to that day when the people of God sent the Son of God to a bloody death on Calvary's cross. Now, listen closely and I'll be done. This is especially true if you've been listening to this series on the scandalous life. Because if you really listened with an open heart, especially these last few weeks if we've looked at what led to the crucifixion of Jesus, you can't help but have thought at times... I can identify with that. That could be. I could have done that. I could have sent him to the cross. I could have plotted and planned like Judas because I was offended at things he'd done or hadn't done. I could have betrayed him. I could have been like those religious leaders who thought they were right, but they were so, so wrong. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I could have been one of those in the crowd that shouted, give us Barabbas. I mean, really, if, if you've listened with an open heart... You'd recognize that, that all of us have those tendencies in our lives. And the reality is that I know that's true because I know that although it was the religious leaders and Judas and Pilate and Herod and all of those who played a role in the death of Jesus, what really sent him to that cross were none of those people. It was sin. Your sin and my sin. The sin of us all. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we're no different, folks. We're no different than any of those characters surrounding Jesus in the first century. And I'm convinced every one of us would have played our part, our role. All of us did through our sin, send him to the cross. And nothing less than that is true about the death and the cross of Jesus Christ. So if you have felt that in your heart these last few weeks, rejoice. James says sometimes it's time for those who are rejoicing to weep and those who are weeping to rejoice, lament, cry out. Because what that is, is that's the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. 
and you're saying, I need a Savior. I need a Lord. And isn't it good to know that even though we sent him there, he went there willingly, and he went there to die for your sin and mine, to save us from the power of sin in our lives and the penalty of sin after this life. Let's pray together. I've watched and prayed for many years as evangelical Christians in the United States have been mobilized into a powerful political force. Pastors and religious leaders working hand-in-hand with politicians as they have led the way for Christians who have pledged their allegiance to politicians and political ideologies. And the result The result has been the creation of a powerful voting bloc that has radically changed the landscape of American politics. Now, in many ways, I understand, and I'm sympathetic with this movement. The rapidly changing culture and what I perceive as clear moral decline in America is very real. But the question is, How are we as followers of Jesus called to respond to these changes? Are we called on to enter into the arena of flesh and blood and to fight with the weapons of this world? Is Christ calling us to spend large amounts of money and time and energy in electing politicians, passing laws, overturning court decisions, and condemning our fellow countrymen, neighbors, and friends who are not like us? I'm convinced that he is not. In fact, it has been heartbreaking to watch those who claim to follow Jesus Christ making the same mistake made by those in ancient Israel as they, quote, unquote, strengthened the hands of evildoers. This abandonment of our moral integrity is seen in our willingness to follow that age-old proverb, the end justifies the means. But the truth is that this is a faithless approach. Worse than that, it is an approach that alienates those whom Christ has called us to reach. This has been Church on the Edge with Dan Armistead, rethinking what church is and what church should be. If you like this episode, please leave a review at your preferred podcast provider. And you can find out more about this podcast as well as my articles, coming books, and more at danarmistead.com. And remember, it's all about Jesus and following him as his church on the edge.